Hello and welcome back to Oh God, What Now? I'm Arlene Foster. <laughs> it is with a heavy heart that I am announcing my final appearance on the podcast. As I leave my position as First Minister and Leader of the DUP, I give my best to my successor, Edwin Poots. May he advance the cause of unionism for another 4,000 years. I move on with pride to my new role as Irish Sea Threat Commander. The jellyfish <laughs> and the seaweed will know that Ulster is British. Well, thank you uh, very much, Arlene. From me, uh, Naomi Smith, we will miss you. Um, and on with the show. Joining me on the podcast this week is Alex Andreu, cook, actor, writer, singer, who has still, as far as I know, never been consulted to write a song for the Eurovision Song Contest. Hello, Alex. <laughs> Hello. For which country would I be writing? Ah, take your pick. <laughs> you, you have a new citizenship, I'm sure. Freedom of movement will allow you to, to pick whichever country, Greece, UK, <laughs> Norway, wherever you fancy. Greenpeace have released a video uh, this week, a fantastic video. Uh, I think everybody should watch it. Mil- millions already have, so I'm sure many listeners uh, have seen it. But it featured friend of the podcast, Matt Ford, as Boris Johnson, revealing that hundreds of thousands of tons of our plastic waste is being exported to Turkey, where it's then burned or thrown in the ocean. We've got COP26 coming up this year, the Climate Change Summit. Very awkward indeed. Why can't we handle our own plastic? Well, this comes down to one of the hottest environmental issues, really, the ethics of richer nations exporting their environmental footprint. It's an attitudinal question. Is it enough to pat ourselves on the back for meeting targets, which are to do with domestic production, completely uncoupled from domestic consumption? You know, For instance, according to Ernest Figures, two years ago, the UK beca- became the G7's biggest net importer of CO2 emissions. That means that we're lowering our domestic emissions in part by making less stuff here and buying it from abroad. So is that a sustainable solution? Surely the solutions reside in consuming less stuff, not with buying stuff sort of under the environmental counter, you know? And now you get this story with Turkey. After China, who used to recycle a lot of our plastic, banned its import, we just found someone else to dump it on without evidently any due diligence or follow-up because apparently the moment we offload it, it's not our problem anymore. Only it is our problem because global temperatures do not respond to our achieving targets. They respond to actual action. And we've had some pretty unseasonal weather this week so uh yeah don't don't be tempted to think that maybe climate change would be a nice thing for our country uh of course it is just going to cause us more chaos uh nina schick is a commentator and author of deep fakes and the infocalypse hello nina welcome back to the show hi hi naomi Nina, the, the new frontier in deepfakes, we're told, is now in audio. And an AI company um, will now charge celebrities to generate a copy of their voice through deep learning. So in theory, we may never have to appear on a podcast ever again. Um, so t- t- tell us about this. Are some of us going to get rich quick while poor podcast producers go under? Well, I don't know how to put this delicately, but um, yeah, um, deepfakes are going to change the future of podcasting. One... Because as you just pointed out, AI can be used to clone human biometrics, right? So not only your face and video, but actually your voice as well. So that actually means that there are already companies out there, I kid you not, um, like Descript, for example, that are offering AI as a tool to edit podcasts. So if you mess something up or your guest does and you want to add that into the script, Um, something that they forgot to say, well, all you need to do is get AI to clone their voice and then you add it into your recording. And all you need to do is type into the back end the words you want that voice to say. I think this could be very useful for Ian Dunt. (laughs) (laughs) He sometimes does struggle to to say the names of our Patreon backers when we thank them. Um, But I mean, who who needs this when you've got Matt Ford and me, right? I just, you know, we can can do the voices anyway. We're, We're deep fakes. 
Thank you, Nina. Our guest this week is definitely a real person. Um, he's been breaking stories for the Financial Times for over 20 years and is rightly now their chief political correspondent. Jim Pickard, very big welcome to Oh God, What Now? Good afternoon. Jim, as we record, we're right on the precipice of a potential surge in uh, the Indian strain of, of coronavirus cases in the UK, just as we're in this phase of reopening uh, England. I, I know that, that some of the other nations have got a, a slightly different on lockdown process. Um, apparently, Matt Hancock was strongly in favour of putting India on the red list um, at exactly the same time as, as Pakistan and Bangladesh. But it was it was the prime minister who overruled him. What really happened here? Do we know who really is telling the truth, who isn't? What what happened? Well, I just feel like we've been through this cycle so many times, haven't we? We've been through the cycle where the scientists say one thing, which is we need to be more cautious. And the ministers, in particular Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak, the chancellor, are listening to the clarion calls of business saying, look, we can't risk wrecking the economy. And therefore, decisions inevitably happen, but they happen too late. And you would have thought by now, which is what, 15 months into this pandemic, they, they would have learned. But we see with India, it was basically all about the fact that the prime minister was doing this trade trip to India and therefore didn't want to do anything that would annoy them and therefore left it far too late to, to impose any sort of controls. And even now, I mean, I, I was on the lobby call yesterday where you know, all the members of the lobby zing questions at the, the prime minister's official spokesman. And the questions were still, you know, even though India has basically been red listed it still doesn't seem to have quite the same controls as other red list countries. And these questions just going on and on. And Dominic Cummings saying the government is not very good at learning from these mistakes, even the great Cummings. Indeed, we did. What would what, what you make of um, his tweet yesterday where he was um, threatening to reveal a crucial COVID document? What's your best guess as to what he was on about? I mean, <laughs> the guy has no irony, does he? He was sort of complaining about how people needed to have tougher lockdowns and people needed to obey lockdowns. And that this is someone who literally is known by the great British public as the person who broke the original lockdown. He doesn't seem to have sort of any sense of his own weaknesses. Um, goodness knows what the specific document is. What we do know is that he is poised to, to come out at the, the Joint Health and Technology Select Committee in, in two weeks and basically make the case against Boris Johnson um, he's going to be very vengeful. But, you know, the, will the public believe him? Is it politically damaging? Probably not so much, because ever since the Barnard Castle trip, he has been one of the most unpopular figures in British politics. Jim, how does he do press press conferences now? How does he call them? Does he send you a text that says, tomorrow at 8.15, I'll be putting the rubbish in the bins? <laughs> well, this we're talking about Dom here. yeah. Because presumably all the reporters are not outside his house permanently. No, exactly. I, I'll tell you what I've noticed, which I think is fascinating, which is that there's a journalist called Simon Walters who has broke a fantastic string of exclusive stories for the mail. And they are things including the refurbishment of the number 11 flats, Downing Street, also the text with MBS, the controversial crown prince of Saudi Arabia, and then more stuff last weekend. And you can't help thinking if this was a former person close to Boris Johnson who wants to cover his tracks, he wouldn't give it all to the same journalist. The fact that someone who may or may not be Dominic Cummings is giving it all to the same person is because they want Boris Johnson to know <laughs> they're getting their revenge. Brilliant. This week on the show, it's been almost five years since the start of the EU referendum campaign. Um, I've definitely aged at least a decade in that time. Um, and judging by the latest evidence, surprise, surprise, Brexit is probably not going that well. Who knew? Well, apart from all of us. Companies are realising that the teething problems aren't teething problems. Uh, unionist leaders are likening the Northern Ireland Protocol to the Vichy regime. And Britain's farmers some of whom, many of whom voted leave, and the environment are about to be shafted by a potential trade deal with Australia. So what's happening and how is government Brexit overlord Frosty preparing for another summer of showdowns with the EU? Plus, exactly how badly did underpaid show favourite and green sill shill David Cameron fare in front of two Commons committees last week? And what's it going to do for his reputation as a former Prime Minister? 
she asked rhetorically. And in our extra bit for Patreon backers, what are you excited to do now that England has reopened for about five minutes before a new lockdown comes back in in the autumn? YouGov has been asking the public and we're going to see what our panel thinks and what they're looking forward to doing. First up this week, if the government isn't racing to fight fires ahead of a deadline that's been extended already, is it really Brexit? Government insiders are warning that checks related to the Northern Ireland Protocol need to be relaxed by July, or a return to disruption and protests is on the cards. Simon Coveney says there are at least 27 problems with the protocol. That's one for each EU member state. Uh, And Lord Frost is similarly warning that the protocol is, quote, dead in the water. We would ask if the wheels were coming off Brexit, but were they ever really on? (laughs) Alex, Lord Frost looks like he's becoming both more important and less useful uh, as all of this wears on. Uh, Mm. Do you think we're looking at another summer of him slinging insults at Brussels? It depends. It depends on whether solutions are found to the Northern Ireland conundrum, if there are such solutions. I mean, Frost's position feels increasingly perilous, I have to say. He's widely briefed as a lateral demotion in the next reshuffle. I sense he's for the chop. The leader of the Loyalist Communities Council, which represents inter-alliar paramilitaries, uh, gave evidence to the Northern Ireland Committee on Wednesday and said Frost was very apologetic about the protocol. That's the protocol that he personally negotiated, drafted and agreed. So, If he manages to square the circle, he will be a hero and seen as effective. If he doesn't, which I suspect is likely, the EU Commission, who loathe him, will gently suggest that a change of personnel may unstick things. And I think our government will grab the opportunity to kick the can down the road with both arms. Well, I, I really like the EU Commission. Um, the professional can kickers uh, in the government have already delayed the first phase of agri-food checks on the border with Northern Ireland until October. Um, and after that, the UK is proposing that the checks be rolled out in four different phases. Um, if the process is already too bureaucratic, how is splitting it up into four different phases going to improve things, do you think? Well, I mean, it makes things more complicated, that's true, but it does mean that traders who are subject to multiple of these processes can learn them one at a time, um, which might make them easier. I think what, what must be stressed here is that all this should have happened within the transitional period. That's what the transitional period was meant for. Do the deal, including a trade deal, then transition to the new arrangement over a minimum of two years. But all of that became, let's get Brexit done, and diggers breaking through walls made of foam blocks, and fucking oven fuckety ready deals. So how long did business actually get to transition into the new arrangement? Six days. I mean, it's it's kind of a surprise. It's gone as well as it has. We've, at Best of Britain, we obviously run the UK Trade and Business Commission, taking lots and lots of evidence from businesses all over the country in different sectors. And it's been staggering how many of them have either said, look, we have increased costs X percent, had to hire 10 new people just to, to do the paperwork. And, and then those that just say, well, we would love to do that because we need to do that, but we can't because we haven't got the margins and we haven't got the balance sheet strength to, to deliver it. It, it. it really is quite staggering that the so-called party of business has failed business so much. Now, listen, you've been um, predicting that Brexit will see its own second wave as businesses decide to leave the UK. What do you mean by that? What, what is a, a second wave? of Brexit and who's likely to jump ship? Okay, so let's take finance as an example. Last month, a new financial think tank found that the churn is very much still in progress. They they said, and I quote, that as the EU takes a tougher line on the location of activity in individuals, we expect these headline numbers to increase in future. That's jobs that have left the country. And sure enough, last week, the FT reported that Morgan Stanley, Barclays and Goldman Sachs are among those moving senior bankers this month. As European reg- regulators push banks to better staff their EU offices. 
So it's most visible in finance, but I suspect the same thing is true in many sectors, especially services. Some companies prefer to be proactive. Many are reactive. And their attitude will have been, before we go into such a huge expense and upheaval, let's see how badly the deal works in practice. Plus, the pandemic, of course, made travel, therefore, therefore scoping out moves and moving staff, more difficult. As travel restrictions ease, there will be a second wave of companies reconsidering whether the UK is the place from which they want to do business. Nina, while we're talking about you know, the movement of people and, and roles, recruitment firms in the UK are reportedly warning that job vacancies have risen uh, by around 20%, I think, in recent weeks, but the applications are weighed down. The LSE and Resolution Foundation have been warning, you know, that the, the economy could go back to the kind of sick man of Europe days and, and GDP output more closely resemble Italy by the end of the decade if, if things don't improve on several fronts, but not least Brexit, of course, and, and COVID recovery. So this seems to go way beyond you know, a bit of mild levelling up agenda. So why do you think the supposed party of the economy just doesn't appear to know what to do about any of it? Uh, does this seem like a government that does forward planning? I mean, our, our prime minister is literally a man who flip-flops and U-turns more than the average man changes his socks right, which is to say every day. Um but no, seriously, moreover, they've been just so busy firefighting, um, not only with regards to some of the undeliverable promises on Brexit, but of course with COVID, that any plans like the one, the Great Cummings, uh, to use Jim's words, wanted to create a kind of DARPA style mission control to run everything with foresight and efficiency from number 10, including the economy has just come up short. Um, but I think in some ways, this government is lucky, right? Because after a year of economic uncertainty, not only due to Brexit, but also COVID, it looks like economists and investors are now slowly more optimistic about the economic outlook, at least in the short to medium term. Of course, the economy is still going to be growing much slower than if Brexit and COVID had never happened. But compared to the stilted atmosphere of the last 12 months, in the words of, I think it was a top economist at the Bank of England, uh, he's predicting that the UK is like a coiled up spring waiting to jump out. And a huge part of that is the substantial rise in household savings during lockdown, which was something that was, I think it's over 140 million uh, pounds or billion even, um, I, I have to look up the figure. Um, and so the government is hoping that and betting that you know, consumers are going to come out and spend, spend, spend. So regardless of the bigger problems in the economy, which might be facing us, you know, by the end of the decade, I think there's going to be this short term post COVID boom, this feeling of optimism, lockdown has ended. And I think consumers, at least for the short term, are going to feel I happy. suppose inflation might temper that. And there's sort of been a, a, a yeah. bit of that around lately. So it's of course a concern that the inflation may uh, get you know, delay purchasing and, and push people into saving. Um, now, the Centre for European Reform calculates that we've lost 16 billion in value of goods trading since the referendum, in a staggering amount. When the costs of leaving the EU are this clear, why do you think the opposition parties are finding it so difficult to find their voice on criticising it? Uh, honestly, I think the reason is because Brexit is no longer a political issue for the majority of the electorate. And I think that for the majority of the electorate, including many of those who voted to remain, Brexit is done. And yes, sure, we know that there's going to be many more years of negotiations and trade-offs and complications and F-ups and even some wins, right, as a result of Brexit. But I don't believe it's ever going to capture the nation as an electoral issue in the same way it did between the years of 2016 and 2020. And to some degree, that was inevitable, because how could the sustained pressure of the years after the vote to actually leaving day be maintained? The public was getting so tired of Brexit. Many wanted to move on. It's impossible for a person, let alone a nation, to function with that amount of dissonance. And the other reason Brexit died, quote unquote, as a major political issue across the electorate, I think, is because of events, of course. And the global pandemic is the event in, uh, that I'm thinking about, you know, starting with a bungling response and everything that's ensued then, since then, a year of lockdown, 
hundreds of thousands of deaths, uh, millions across the world, the most prolific public spending program in British history. And that too, by a Tory government that's led by somebody who was around in the Osborne austerity days, right? Followed by this astoundingly successful vaccination drive. And now what looks like this post lockdown reality beckoning. So I don't think it's the same outlook for Britain or the world um, had COVID not happened and it supersedes Brexit. So in my view, Brexit has hit the high watermark in the public consciousness. And that's probably why opposition parties are finding it hard. Andy Burnham seems to sort of be agreeing with you, I think. He's saying that we Mm -hmm. should just embrace Brexit as the new reality, Mm i.e. not necessarily talk about Brexit, but but accept it and and move on. Do you think Labour can triangulate that criticism, you know, on the one hand telling Brexit voters, look, you're just not getting what you voted for, while reassuring those that do still have quite a strong, you know, pro-European identity that they're going to fight for those internationalist values. Yeah, he's right. I do believe that it's the new reality because it's happened, right? And we know that it's happened, but there's many, many more years of negotiations, many years of tedious negotiations. But aside from totemic (laughs) flare-ups like the fishermen or the perceived victories over Europe, like in the case of the vaccination drive, um, I doubt that the general public is going to get into the details of those negotiations. Why? Because, you know, they're tedious, they're long-winded, and like I already said, there are so many other things voters want to co- concentrate yeah, on. Yeah, but yeah, but what do you know if you think men change their socks every day? I know. You know? I know. This is very <laughs> salacious gossip, and I'm told that the Prime Minister... Uh, <laughs> the pri- the, I'm, told that, I'm told the Prime Minister doesn't change his socks every day. This is as salacious as the Financial Times gets. <laughs> It's too believable, Jim. It's too believable. Your colleague and a good friend of our podcast, Peter Foster, um, has reported on a fight within Cabinet over, uh, let's talk about post-Brexit, the UK's post-Brexit deal with Australia. International Trade Minister Liz Truss obviously wants to give Australian farmers zero tariff access to the UK. But we've got people like Michael Gove and George Eustace uh, who are worried about undermining British farmers. And insiders admit they've kind of got, at this moment in time, not much idea about which way Johnson will jump. He may have jumped by the time this recording comes out. Which way do you think it will go? So, I mean, this this is the heart of Brexit, isn't it? Where people were promised that we could simultaneously be a free marketeer, buccaneering nation of, of free traders, and we could also somehow protect our ceramics industry in so-called Trent, and we could protect our hill farms in Wales. And everything would be rosy, ignoring the fact that these choices would come down the line. And we're going to have it with the American trade deal as well, where basically the American government isn't going to give us the trade deal we want unless we bow to all sorts of um, products, agricultural products from the US coming into Britain. And so this Australia situation is a fascinating test case. I think it also goes back to what I think Alex was saying earlier about you know, imports, the, the, the fact that we sort of import our carbon emissions from overseas. You know, I don't personally know why we should be importing beef from Australia. Like why, why would we bring a dead cow, pieces of dead cow from literally the other side of the planet? Is it that much better than the cow uh, from Europe? And so you, so you have this argument going on where you have Michael Gove on the one side and Eustace who's trying to protect the farmers. And then you have the Liz Trust free traders on the other side who are saying, you know, what's, what's the point of Brexit if we can't have all these deals with other countries where we can bring down the price of everything and it's, it's basically all about cheap food for households in the UK. Um, it's not clear which way the Prime Minister is going to jump. I think it feels like he's going to jump in the, the direction of trust. And I think the argument they will make is that these tariff reductions are going to be faced in over such a long period of time, which is somewhere between 10 and 15 years, that our farmers will have that period in which to adjust and become more efficient and all the rest of it. But the, the idea that a small Welsh hill farm can compete with some sort of giant Australian producer with, you know, hundreds of thousands of hectares, even with the cost of transportation, I think is possibly a little bit far-fetched. And you can see why the the farmers are are up in arms. It's a real kind of test case for the the battle of the post-Brexit future. Definitely time for the whole nation to go vegan. I'm a vegan, Jim. I'm always (laughs) always plugging away at this. Uh, As you quite rightly say, who wants a bit of 
dead cow that's travelled But, I, tens of but I said this the other day, you know, I said, what about the environmental cost of, you know, getting all this stuff from so much further away? And the Leave Alliance, back from the dead, um, jumped down my throat and said that, oh, but the stuff we were getting from Europe was produced in environmentally unfriendly big greenhouses in Spain and terrible worker conditions in Eastern Europe and and all of that. And I said, well, the the point is we're now bringing it from Vietnam and Australia and Latin America, and you have no idea what conditions are produced under or whether the workers are in get paid any better the one thing we do know is that they travel thousands of miles more. <laughs> the, also, the, the other thing we know is about animal welfare standards um, and some of the farming practices that, that happen in Australia that have been long since banned in, in the UK and EU uh, and things like mulesing sheep, which is where to, to avoid bot fly strikes, they sort of genitally mutilate these animals oh. with no anaesthetic. I mean, it, it's banned for a reason here, but all of a sudden we're, we're going to be uh, opening up our market to, to sort of supporting those kinds of practices and Carrie Simons is obviously you know big animal welfare fan and I would hope that she would uh, be pointing this out to Boris Johnson but who knows Jim on Monday Lord Frost announced that the government is hiring an external advisor to identify post-Brexit opportunities we talked about forward planning they clearly hadn't done any forward planning to try and identify those um this government isn't exactly lacking for people who think Brexit is a good idea why do they need someone else to do it and and do you reckon somebody like James Dyson is waiting on the end of the phone I mean this this does remind me slightly of what happened a few months ago which is where ministers called in all the big business groups and and basically said to them can you help us identify what these great new opportunities are post-Brexit? <laughs> to which the business groups privately replied to journalists like myself, we didn't want Brexit. Why are you, why are you asking us? Although they were obviously very courteous and tactful when, when they were in the room. And um, it's almost like a sort of, you know, post, post-event justification. And um, when, when ministers talk about what are the post-Brexit business opportunities, they keep talking about free ports, which... You know, some areas of the country which are getting a free port like Teesside are quite excited about them. There is obviously massive counter-argument that you're basically displacing economic activity, which might have happened, let's say, in Tyneside, and you're you're transporting it 50 miles down the coast or wherever else it is. You're sort of, you're sort of pinching the balloon rather than necessarily bringing in fresh investment. I think the truth is just the, the, the tidal wave of economic shocks on the pandemic it's basically not the country for six GDP plunged by whatever it was, the, the biggest amount in hundreds of years. And therefore, the convenient thing for Brexiteers is clearly that you know, when we emerge from the rubble of the pandemic, it's going to be very hard for people to unpick which bit of the damage was caused by the virus and the response to the virus and the lockdowns and which bit was caused by Brexit. Which is exactly why Best Britain is doing its commission, because the, the, the businesses have been you know, very good at trying to tell us, you know, we've had to hire this many people costing this amount of money purely to deal with the administrative burden that our suppliers don't want to take on in Europe. So we're doing it for them um, and, and, and can separate it. But, but you're right, I think the prevailing narrative and it will be a very easy foil for the government to, to hide a lot of that Brexit pain under, uh, you know, the, the cover of COVID. Um, I think the other, sorry to, sorry to butt in, but I think, I think the other point I'd make is that I agree with Nina that there is an awful lot of um, you know, suppressed household savings which could be unleashed in a kind of small support of saving later in the year. But we also have to remember that the furlough scheme will be unraveled in September. And at that point, we will find out how much of the unemployment that has been prevented by the furlough scheme, the job support scheme, how much of that will remain and how much of it is permanent damage. That is one of the biggest economic unknowns of this year. Just getting back to Brexit, though, and you, you make an incredibly good point there on, on the, the follow ending and, and the jobs losses. But if we really do end up as a kind of, you know, a similar level of economy to, to Italy uh, by the end of this decade, as, as Resolution Foundation have predicted, um, can you see the blame ever landing on Brexiters? Or, it, you know, does your point stand around the COVID stuff? There'll just be other things that everything can be blamed on. So firstly, voters don't want to be told that they've made a bad choice. They don't want to be told that they don't want to be told that they've made a mistake. People take kind of take offense at that. And so if things economically are not as good as they might have been otherwise, I don't think people are going to want to attribute that to their own voting choices. And I think 
there are there are a couple of things we you alluded to earlier, such as the failure, the relative failure of the EU vaccination program. It's something that a lot of people have seized on. We voted for Brexit as proof that they made the right decision. I know plenty of Remainers who look at that and think, blimey, the European Commission is is really not not a very efficient organization. And, and maybe on that point at least we, we were best at. I think the thing is, the thing about Brexit, the column that always sticks in my memory, and this is picking up the Financial Times, of course, is a column by Janan Ganesh from years ago where he talked about how the cost of Brexit Many of them were unknown unknowns or known unknowns. And he referred to the analogy of the um, British cycling team and how they've become the best in the world by 50 tiny, tiny things like, I don't know, shaving their armpits or whatever the hell it was. And it, he referred to Brexit being a similar thing where it was a kind of aggregation of small consequences, many of which we won't notice, right? So if a Slovakian tractor manufacturer, or for a better example, a Malaysian tractor manufacturer was looking at coming to Europe uh, while we were in the EU and in the single market, they might have considered Britain. They'd choose to go to the Czech Republic or France instead, or they might have gone to Britain. You know, now, we're not going to know if a potential investor decides not to even look at the UK because they're not going to announce it. They're not going to say, are they? Mm. And unless they're kind of big redundancies, there might be an awful lot of companies losing three people here, six people here. You know, an eel exporter might cut 15 jobs it's not going to necessarily appear in the local newspaper and is not necessarily going to be attributed to brexit so an awful lot of the consequences of our vote in 2016 the consequences of the hard brexit that boris johnson chose will be very much below the radar hi i'm katie riley on the slow newscast from tortoise donald trump became the first former u.s president in history to face a criminal trial the defendant repeatedly made false statements on new york business records this is not a trial. This is not a, an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. Next up, when David Cameron faced MPs last week to answer questions about his lobbying for the disgraced firm Greensill Capital, he claimed he was motivated by public service. This despite Conservative with a small c estimates that he stood to earn £60 million from selling his shares in the company. Text messages released before his committee appearance revealed just how he was sliding into Rishi Sunak's DMs to get the government to buy bonds from Greensill, which collapsed a year after his charm offensive. Jim, give us the elevator pitch for Greensill's collapse. Where did it go wrong? Where are we now? So the fascinating thing about the failure of Greensill Capital is that the general public, I think, are most interested in the David Cameron story and how he phonetically lobbied in a rather desperate way to um, get access to, to several COVID support schemes last spring. It's a story I'm particularly fascinated in having with my colleagues broken the original story. But what, what is much bigger and much more fascinating is who he was lobbying for, because if he'd been lobbying for, I don't know, AstraZeneca or Marks and Spencer or, or something, yeah, it would be a bit embarrassing, but it wouldn't be part of a much bigger scandal. What is gradually emerging is what Cameron himself describes as the symbiotic relationship between Greensill Capital and GFG Alliance, which is Sanjeev Gupta's big industrial conglomerate, which has steel and aluminium assets all over the globe and has grown through this absolute breakneck pace of, of, of buying up all these kind of unloved, rusty assets all over the world. And he's done that with finance from Greensill Capital. It's a symbiotic relationship, in the words of David Cameron, and now GFG Alliance is under investigation by the Serious Fraud Office after some quite interesting reports, particularly in the FT, about invoices from companies who claim to have never done business with GFG Alliance. Can we just ever so quickly though go back to Cameron and, and his appearance in front of MPs? It, it, predictably, he was very, very tight-lipped. But how, what did you make of how he presented himself to the committee? Did it surprise you? you know, was it as you, were, you expected? How, how, how do you think he performed? I expect him to come along and be very smooth and serious and, um, and basically make the case that he was working for a company which was an exciting area of fintech, 
which we now know to be a little bit questionable. But you know, he can legitimately point out that this had a huge investment from uh, SoftBank, which is one of the most respected private, ex- private equity investors in the world, SoftBank of Japan, and you know had various associations. You know, it, it worked for various other companies such as Vodafone, and therefore. It's not as if the whole world knew that this was a, a sort of shaky edifice and he was the only person, gullible person to go along with it. And I, I have some sympathy for that point of view. I think the thing where he became kind of less credible was firstly when he said that he ha- didn't have a faintest inkling that the company was in trouble until December last year. Now, he should have known that the company, the insurance company that was backing these loans, which is called Tokyo Marine, basically pulled the plug in September 2020. And therefore, Lex Greensill definitely knew the company was in trouble then, if not before. Um, maybe Cameron was kept in the dark, we don't know. I feel his, his, to someone who didn't know what was going on, his evidence would have seemed smooth and, and mellifluous and plausible. For those of us who've been following every dot and comma of it, there were some kind of hilarious alternative visions of reality. So, for example, <laughs> he was... Do you remember this one? He talked about lobbying was going to be the next scandal. You know, who these ghastly former politicians, he literally talked about former politicians um, doing lobbying and how it was a scandal waiting to happen. And he was asked about this, I think, by Siobhan McDonough. And he, he tried to take the moral high ground and say, well, yes, after that speech, I went ahead and I, I sort of tightened up the disclosure requirements. And you know, so people would always know when there were meetings between you know, business lobbyists and, and ministers. And had I got any of the meetings that I was trying to get, they would have appeared in this register. To which the MPs should have said to him, literally 56 different attempts to lobby via ministers and via officials, none of which would have appeared in the public domain if it wasn't for reporting by the British press. Indeed, and we are very grateful to you for it. Alex, what's your view of how Cameron's reputation has been damaged or otherwise by this? It has been damaged. I mean, I think all of this is cumulative, isn't it? It's not this. It's not the sort of story that has instant impact. It's a. It's a sort of long fuse with a tipping point. Um, I went back before we recorded, and I I looked at the uh, parliamentary expenses scandal. Remember that? I bet we all remember it as a, more or less a bright sort of scandal shock, a burst of information, a dark spot in time. I was shocked when I reviewed the information and found that the original Freedom of Information request was made in February 2008, after which there was a drip of information and insinuation for over a year, court cases trying to force the parliament to disclose the information before the leak in May 2009, which kept coming for two months. And then the criminal charges happened between February and October 2010. That's two and a half years after brilliant journalists like Jim started sniffing around this issue. So I think in our memory, we tend to condense scandals into big things that happened in the space of two weeks and took down a government. But the truth is actually that these things build up and bubble up for a long time. And then, you know, the stench becomes so impossible to ignore that every single element of this story will come back into play. Now, do you think the government are worried about this? Um, and, and when we talk about lobbying, it would be remiss of us not to also talk about the link between you know, uh, political donations and, and, and requests. Well, I, I mean, that's at the root of this, isn't it? And it's a, it's a drum I bang all the time. This idea of above board, you know, this idea of declaring stuff... The purpose of declaring stuff is to ensure that there's no conflict of interest. It doesn't, declaring stuff doesn't make a conflict of interest that exists magically go away. And, and this has mutated into a weird situation. You know, Jim talks about that speech that Cameron made, you know, saying that lobbying would be the, the next big uh, scandal. Well, he made that speech while simultaneously selling himself for dinners through the Conservative Party website, which advertised a platinum membership that meant you could have access to the 
to the prime minister. I always find it staggering how local government and central government are very different on these things. In, in local government, anyone listening who's a councillor or has attended council meetings knows that it, the, the, you you declare the interest and you leave the room. You know, if it's about a planning issue in your ward yeah. or you know something that you've got, a, you know, a property nearby or whatever. So but I agree. I um sorry to put in, but I agree with Alex that this disclosure doesn't suddenly magically solve everything. So there was a bit of a hoo ha in the early days of the Greensill scandal where. Basically, there's a lobbying registrar, which was something set up in the Cameron era, was basically asked to, in inverted commas, investigate Cameron. And all it basically was, was they looked at whether Cameron should have been registered on this list of people who lobby the government. And they concluded, as we'd all predicted, that Cameron's name didn't need to be there because he was uh, an in-house lobbyist and he wasn't a third-party lobbyist. But And Cameron, in his evidence last week, said... You know what, having sort of reflected deeply on all this, I've concluded that that register should include in-house lobbyists. But the elephant in the room was that just because Cameron's name would have been on a website doesn't mean we would have had the faintest idea who he was lobbying, in what way, and, and to, to, what, to what intent and what potential financial gain. It, it's, it was the whole thing's rhubarb. Nina, Labour often labels these scandals as chumocracy rather than you know something more strident like alleged corruption. Why do you think they're wearing kid gloves on this issue? Look, I think the word chumocracy uh, stalker is used because it's meant in the most offensive way, right? David Cameron and his Burlington buddies all moving through the revolving door to paint them as a bunch of elite, out-of-touch leaders. But... I don't think they're wearing kid gloves to protect themselves from any future potential lobbying for themselves. I think they just haven't cut through on this because their comms suck. I mean, like Jim so eloquently <laughs> laid out. <laughs> yeah, they do. I'm sorry. Jim's just like so eloquently laid out why this is so dodgy. And thank you for the FT when they're reporting on this. You know, if it weren't for the British press picking up on this, this would fly under the radar. This should be a huge scandal. It's not AstraZeneca. It's green cell we're talking about. So dodgy, dodgy territory. And Labour is just not landing the punches. And I think if they their comms were a little bit better, their strategy was a bit better, they could really make headway with the electorate on this, unlike some of the other issues. Uh, which we've discussed and, you know, with regard to their changing demographic when it comes to their voters and kind of the declining of labor and the red wall. This is an area where polls consistently show uh, the public is skeptical of politicians. They certainly don't trust David Cameron. They don't even trust Boris Johnson. Um, if, if, if they wanted to bat a little bit harder, I think they could make this one land. Unfortunately, I don't think they've been able to. So we've, we've talked about you know David Cameron's reputation being sort of further tarnished by this. Is it possible to be a good former leader? You know, when we think about you know Tony Blair's reputation and uh, and now Cameron's. I mean, will your reputation just sort of automatically follow you unless you're you know, Jimmy Carter and building houses, you know, in your in, well into your 80s. Uh, yeah, I think uh, good old Jimmy Carter, the peanut farmer, is probably um, the exception, right? Not the norm. It's hard to see in any situation how a politician can maintain credibility and integrity in the eyes of the public when they lobby or make millions and millions of dollars and pounds after they leave office, right? It's so callous that it kind of dilutes their brand. And but why are they such hot property? Even if they like resign in disgrace, they, they can command these huge sums on the after-dinner circuit. Why are we so voraciously you know, wanting to hear what they've got to say? People love gossip, right? They were leader of a country. They had access to other world leaders. They had access to privileged conversation, national security information, um, world changing events. You know, even um, Theresa May is kind of raking it in on the after dinner speaking circuit. Although, I mean, I think to, to be really successful. If you're paying £100,000 for a Theresa May speech, you're going to be very disappointed. That's, that's, what, the, I that's what I was going to say. That's what I was going to say. That's a recipe for indigestion, if I've ever heard one. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick up for former prime ministers and say that there are ways of doing it in a dignified way and there are ways of doing it in an undignified way. And I think Gordon Brown has been pretty dignified. I think Theresa May has been dignified. I think Blair, there was a lack of dignity about the way that he chased financial contracts with some quite unsavory regimes and some 
not particularly progressive companies. And he had the sort of wisdom to do it outside the UK, which is where David Cameron's got unstuck. The kind of mitigating circumstance that they always talk about is prime ministers are younger than they were. And therefore, what, what is a man or woman to do when they're thrown on the scrappy book, 48 or 49 or whatever, whatever it is. But, you know, Major, I think John Major is quite a good way of doing it, where I think he sort of chaired some board or something at a private equity firm, I'm going to say Carlisle, and it was kind of discreet and didn't get him into any trouble, probably made him quite a wealthy person, but it was done in a dignified, low-key way. By this autumn, there could be more people suffering from long COVID than dementia. Yet we're only just beginning to understand this long-lasting and debilitating syndrome. On this week's edition of Nursing Matters, the podcast from the Royal College of Nursing, we look at new research which uncovers the remarkable complexity of long COVID, from brain fog to fatigue to multi-organ damage. That's Nursing Matters, the new podcast from the Royal College of Nursing, with me, Rachel Hollis. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now it's time for Overrated, Underrated, where we pick the Golden Globes and the Golden Raspberries of the political world. And this week, our guest, Jim Pickard, gets his pick. Jim, tell us, what do you think is overrated and what would you put in the underrated box? So if you are coming to London and you find yourself not only metaphorically in the Westminster bubble, but literally in the <laughs> SW1. And you will, well, I don't know what bubble people drink. It's probably, probably some sort of elite <laughs> beverage. Uh, I can only imagine. But if you want your pint, do you go to the Red Lion or the Westminster Arms? And I would say Red, don't do the Red Lion. It's, it's overrated. And it also has tourists in it. No offence to the tourists. Whereas the Westminster Arms is... Is two hundred yards away, and I would I would go there. And I'm kind of I'm not into the red line at the moment anyway because you have to pre-book and you can't move around and talk to other people. You get told off. That that is a very overrated pub. Yeah, I would probably say my underrated in the area would be the two chairman. Mm. What about you, Alex? I I don't know any of the pubs in Westminster. I'm I'm a South <laughs> London boy. I don't know any of the pubs you people drink. We've reached the end of the show, which means it's time to answer a question from you, the listener, in our section called But Your Emails. This week, listener FK says, I noticed quite by chance that the government's much vaunted legislation for an age lock on adult content online was not present in the Queen's speech. This seems odd considering how much noise the government had made about it. Why is it missing? Did they just not want to make the Queen say Pornhub? And does the panel think we need protecting from online harms like this? (laughs) Who who wants to take that one? It's not just missing from the Queen's speech, is it? It's missing from the actual online harms bill, um, which is, you know, people thought, well, maybe it wasn't in the Queen's speech because they didn't want her to talk about smut. But then the the online harms draft bill came out and all the sort of uh, lobbying organizations, you know, for children's safety online and all of that were absolutely shocked that there was nothing in it about this thing that the government's been talking about for years. But why Um, not, Alex? That's the question. Why not? I've no idea. Maybe someone tried... um, uh, doing the thumb on the um, on the iPhone while um, no! you know, the, while the th- <laughs> there was lube on the thumb and it didn't work. I don't know the 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 practical difficulties. <laughs> the practical- they, am I going mad? Or were they proposing that you needed some kind of porn pass where you'd you'd sort yes, of go? Yes, yes. I mean, yes. And li- libertarians who are sometimes wrong about stuff but often right about stuff. <laughs> were up in arms about the idea that we'd be walking around the streets carrying 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 our passes. I I I say I say unified with a vaccination passport. Just have Is a rolled into one. Yeah, app. just have a porn and vaccine passport. <laughs> <laughs> I am a responsible adult person. 
<laughs> Maybe this is the incentive they need to reach those final hard to hard to get unvaccinated people. Maybe I, Jim. I am from a country where we all have identity cards, and I never understood this bit of the British psyche that kind of goes crazy every time there's there's the slightest talk of any ID. Three decades later, it seems a mystery to me. It seems much more of a, an invasion of my privacy to have to go to a, a bank or the post office and present, you know, two recent bills and and a copy of my library uh, lending history and whatever else they decide. To yeah, have. but Alex, if you, if you were a criminal, you'd have to say on this podcast that you were supremely relaxed about ID cards. <laughs> so it could, it could just be a clever, <laughs> a clever double bluff. No, I, I can just declare it and then it magically goes away. That's the way it works, isn't it? And that's the end of the show. Thank you so much to Nina. Thank you. Alex. Thank you for having me. And our wonderful guest, Jim Pickard. My pleasure. In this week's extra bit for Patreon backers, we'll be looking at what the general public is excited for after a year and a half of lockdowns. Have we lost our appetite for dating, commuting and going to church on Sundays with a close personal friend? Someone like Arlene? Back <laughs> for as little as £2 a month to hear the full episode. You'll get a preview after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a thanks to our latest Patreon backers. Hello, and welcome to the outside world, in England at least, from me to Gavin Dean, David Holland, Chris Cornley, Mark Drew, and Alison Honeyford. A virtual hug from me, and if you see me out there, now that they're legal, I'll give you a real one. To Anna Mack, Dominic Ward, Pam, Andrew Capel, and David Adger. Please enjoy a beer not outside in the pouring rain to Kira Holmes, Nicola Brooke, Patricia Crystal, Gareth Smith, and Cass Chidiak. Oh God, what now was presented by Arlene Foster with Naomi Smith, Alex Andreu and Nina Schick. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofranevich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. This week, with pubs, restaurants and cafes opening for the burgeoning political thriller writers around England, YouGov has asked people across the age range what they're most excited for once lockdown lifts. Atop the list is 77% of people who are looking forward to not having to think about coronavirus or social distancing, and at the bottom, only 24% of people looking forward to going back to a place of worship. Come on, everybody. How long, <laughs> how long is this COVID anxiety going to follow us around? Why aren't we wanting to go on dates? Come on. What do you make of all of this? Well, just from my single friends who've been um, trying to date during lockdown, I think not having to go on a date has actually really helped because they just cut... You know, they just cut to the chase. I think they're just... (laughs) (laughs) Want to move in. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I actually know some stories like that, where it's either been like move-in engagement or, you know, they just, no need for the small talk, no need to go to a pub, sleep over at your house. And then, you know, So they've been breaking lockdown. They were breaking lockdown. I will not reveal. And that was a taster of the after-hours lock-in version of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God, What Now? every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll be helping the podcast and we will appreciate it enormously. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.